Good evening. Good to see you all again. To be together, and for me, this is marks the return back to Milwaukee after spending about three weeks with our families. We're going to be talking about New Testament ethics, which is sort of a departure for uh, probably most of most of us in this room. And I felt it was really interesting as a grandfather to watch our grandchildren as they begin their ethical, moral development. It starts probably when they are potty training. Uh, you send the kids in to say, okay, go use the potty, wash your hands, come out and tell you when, it's, tell you when, it, when you're done. And they come out, did you go to the pot? Did you wash your hands? Yes. And then you go in, and of course they didn't do it. <laughs> and what's, what, what's going on there is the conscience is developing. They want, you to, they want to please their parents, but they're not able to. And so they lie. And you have to start teaching them truth and lies. And then they grow a little bit older and they start developing by play. And they're very sensitive to cheaters. If you try to change the rules on them, oh no, that's cheating, you're cheating. And uh, you're lying and they, they become very black and white very quickly. And then they develop a little bit more. And you as a parent will tell them what they're supposed to do. For example, you take them to a water hazard and you say, I don't want you to come near this water unless you're with a parent. And what do you think happens at this stage? This is the questioning stage. Uh, hold on, I have a question. Why can't I? And there's two answers you can give, right? Well, you can go into the explanation of what can possibly happen or then you can, or you can just say to them, because I say so. If you say the first, you turn them into lawyers because they want to negotiate with you. Can I come here by myself with my friends or not? And you have to start explaining. And what you're doing is just perpetuating this deal making. And what you're making yourself is irrelevant because what they're saying is I want to do this and I'm going to try it. Or you can just pull the hammer out and say, you're going to do it because I'm the parent and you've got to obey me. In which case, you're arbitrary. And so what do you think the answer to that question is? What do you think you should say when they ask that question, why can't I do it? Yep. Yep. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm um, and she's like, I 
Okay. Is that the way the rest of you have handled that situation? Because I said so. <laughs> because I said so. That's the main. <laughs> That's the hammer answer. Yeah. I think there's a better answer. And tell me what you think of this. I would say it's because I love you. Because underneath that question is a real question. Can I trust you? And from the parent's perspective, there's the desire for that child to have your character, to repeat your character. It's not just about teaching them the rules, and it's not just about ex exercising your authority so that they respect you. It's about giving them a character that they will then be able to behave in a way that's responsible. And so what they're really asking is, can I trust you? And if the answer is, because I love you, it's really saying something like, I want to be able to develop in you the character, and you're not ready for this yet, but you will be. And it's the same with God. If you try to ask yourself, how is it that God commands us? And it's all about his kingship, his rule in our lives. And what happens with God is, is even more puzzling because we can't fool him. We can't lie to him. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. Uh, we can't negotiate with him because he is the, the standard of righteousness. So there's no negotiation, there's no argument. And yet the first command is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And how do you command that? How do you command somebody to love you? You have to impart that in their character. They have to see it modeled. They have to understand the motivations behind your commands. And this is why the commands of God in the Old Testament have a context. He begins the Ten Commandments with, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He gives a context in which you can trust and rely and love him in order to abide it. But it's still in the Old Testament the matter that you have to write the God, commands of God in your heart. In New Testament ethics, we're dealing with something different. The kingdom of God has come in the preaching of Jesus. It's present. He both taught it and he modeled it. But he didn't just teach it by laying down a new law. He taught it in a special way. And we're going to explore that. One of the means of, by which he taught what we should do is through parables and stories. And there's a very special quality about that, which we need to, which we need to learn and talk about and remember, because as we go through the New Testament, it just so happens that the New Testament teaches us how to live in a storied world.
in the world where Jesus has provided a framework for our behavior. So we need parables, not only to understand the teachings of Jesus, but understanding the whole New Testament ethic. But he also modeled it. And because he modeled it, he embedded in his kingdom a new standard, a new law, a new covenant. And so we're going to talk about both of those tonight. And I hope it's edifying to you. So let's start off with prayer. Lord, you've taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We long for the day when your kingdom does come. And we pray that you will free us again tonight to be your disciples to do the daring walk of faith, which means that we take up our cross and we follow you and we willingly expect to undergo your sufferings that we might share in your glory. So we ask that you would prepare us in our minds and in our hearts to receive this word and to live it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this idea of the kingdom of God is a little bit hard for us to understand. I know it is for me. Whenever people talk about the kingdom of God, what comes to mind? King George. We rebelled from kings. Kings are authoritarian figures. And so it's hard for us, I think, to buy into this idea of kingdom because we always think of defined states with specific borders ruled by a magistrate who's democratically elected. And so that doesn't really fit in with the whole idea of kingship, does it? But maybe it would help us to understand what people in the time of Jesus would hear when he talked about the kingdom of God if we thought about the Lord of the Rings and Aragorn returning to Minas Tirith after they've destroyed Mordor, and they've had this uh, war in the Helm's Deep and destroyed uh, all of the evil forces, and he comes back to Minas Tirith, and Gandalf gives him the crown, and Princess Eowyn is brought before him, and he gives her this big kiss, and everybody says, yay, and they all bow down before the four hobbits who have uh, borne the ring to, of power. You see, the king has brought about a reign and a new age. That's the beginning of the fourth age of Middle-earth. And so the kingdom of God means two things. It means the reign of the king, and it also is the realm where the king rules, the realm of Gondor. But it doesn't necessarily mean a state in our modern context. Because without the rule, without the king, you don't have a realm. So they both have to come together. But those two ideas are present in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus taught specifically about the present kingdom of God. 
but he also talked about the future coming of the kingdom of God. And the two of those have very different ethical implications. The present rule of the kingdom is a spiritual reign of Christ. The future is going to be his return at the end of time. And Jesus taught two very different types of ethics which had to do with the future and the present. He taught a perfectionist ethic for the future kingdom. And we're going to talk about some of those perfectionist ethics, the ones about giving up wealth, living lives of poverty, and being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are eschatological ethical principles that we're going to talk about. And how do those apply to us today? But he also used parables to impart in the present the character of his rule. So those are what we're going to focus on tonight because those parables taught what they commanded and he also modeled the kingdom of God in the present. So let's look at the parables first of all. I think we could look at many parables. Maybe the best one to look at is this one right at the beginning of Mark. Mark 3, 22 to 30. Maybe one of, uh, someone here could uh, read that to us. Okay. Please do it. Okay, this is the famous parable of the house divided and the binding of the strong man. This parable comes shortly after Jesus has healed someone. And he began to teach them that this, that he had brought in the kingdom of God. So, this parable is a parable of the kingdom, meaning that what Jesus preaches and what he does is enacted in this parable, indirectly. And what he's talking to them about is the fact that he heals by, uh, his healing is binding the strong man so that he can then plant in their hearts the kingdom of God. He heals to bind Satan's 
control through sickness, through demon possession, and immediately before that, this is the case, demon possession. And the Pharisees said, he heals by Beelzebub. They attributed Christ's healing to Satan. And that is what Jesus says is the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's the unforgivable sin. The same parable appears in Luke, where Jesus adds, where Luke adds that the Luke adds the saying that if I heal by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is here. In other words, Jesus' healings are to be taken as a work of God. And those who attribute his healing to Satan have, refu have, ref have rejected his message of the, the, the coming of the kingdom of God now. And therefore, they do not enter into that kingdom. So this is the way Jesus talked about what was going on in his ministry. He didn't directly say to them, listen, I am God, and you need to do what I'm telling you. No, he told them a story. And out of that story, you can, you can get what, he's point, what his point is if you're willing to accept the premise of the story and enter into it. That's how the parable works. The same thing happens in the very next chapter when he talks about the four soils and the seed that drops on them. If you remember, this is a very popular, everyone's probably heard it, the, the sower sows seed on some of it falls along the path, some of it falls in rocky soil, some of it falls among weeds and thorns, and some of it falls on good soil and grows and raises up. But what's interesting about this is uh, in Mark 4, 9 through 14, Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. And uh, perhaps someone could read that. Thank you. So he gives an explanation to his disciples, and he tells them, I'm teaching in parables so that those who are outside, who are not my disciples, don't understand. He's purposely telling parables so that they are offended. And he's talking, uh, in, again, indirectly about the kingdom of God in his preaching. 
And it's not like he's giving them a secret meaning. There's some esoteric meaning that uh, the thorns stand for something and all that. It just, uh, all, he clearly teaches that these different soils stand for the different way people respond to Jesus and his teaching. And so there's nothing mysterious about it. The thing that makes it hard to understand is because you have to apply it. You have to accept whether you are the good soil, the rocky soil, or the thorny soil. And when you apply it, you come to a point of faith where you are willing to receive the preaching of the kingdom in Jesus' word. So this use of parables is an indirect way of imparting what the character that God wants in us. By telling a story, you have to enter into that story. You have to accept the premise of the conditions that he's laying out and put yourself as a character in the story and Jesus there in the story as well in order to understand the meaning. Understanding here doesn't have to do with some interpretation. It has to do with applying what it's clearly teaching to your life. And that's how parables work. Hearing, you must hear. If you don't hear rightly, you won't hear what the teaching is teaching. And so this is parables. They teach what they command. And they require faith and obedience in order to understand them. Uh, all of us have probably learned this as parents. The best way to teach a child, how do you start? Tell them a story. If you just lay out the rules, they're going to turn you off. But you start telling them about when you were a kid and your mom did such and so to you, and this and that happened, automatically their imagination is caught up in the story that you're trying to tell them. And that's how Jesus taught. He imparted the character that he's teaching through parables. And so, again, just to review, he started in Mark 1, 14 through 15, announcing the presence of the kingdom. And then he started teaching parables which brought about the kingdom as they're heard and listened to and applied. And in Mark 2, Mark tells us, Jesus taught many things in parables. Parables, riddles, proverbs, aphorisms, they teach moral principles through stories. We need this category when we look at the New Testament ethics. In, P in Paul and in James, we have to remember that this is how Jesus imparted the kingdom of God because they follow his model in their teaching. James talks about wisdom which comes from above. And Paul uses uh, beautiful hymns to impart the basic moral principles. So it's a category we need. Proverbs, parables, but there's something more that Jesus did. He didn't just teach. It's necessary to teach. You have to teach your children. You have to tell them the truth. 
And the best way that we can do it, maybe, is through stories. But you have to model it, too. And that's what Jesus did. In a very specific place, Mark tells who Jesus is in a special way. And one of the features of the book of Mark, and that's why I'm focusing on it right now, is the ignorance of the disciples. <laughs> he tells a story about the four, the seeds and falling on the four soils, and, and they have to ask, well, what did that mean, you know? And they're all the time just sort of missing it. Um, Mark is telling that story that way because what he's saying by telling this whole gospel is if you're not willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps to the cross, you won't understand who he is. And it comes out very clearly right here in the center of the book of Mark. In Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think I am? This incident is immediately preceded by the healing of a man born blind. In that incident, Jesus spits and he touches the eyes. And the blind man gains partial sight. He begins to see things that look like trees, he says. And so Jesus touches their eyes again, touches his eyes again, and he is able to see. Immediately after that, we have this story of the disciples whose eyes are being opened to who Jesus really is and what he's come to do in his life and in his kingdom. And so he starts by asking them, who do you think I am? And Peter makes this great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but our, my Father in heaven. And then he begins to teach them in verse 831 that the Son of Man must, very strong word, it's necessity, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And immediately Peter says to him, no, no. That's not the Messiah I'm expecting. May it not be, Master. And Jesus rebukes him. You're thinking like men. Get behind me, Satan. And then he begins to teach him in the very next verse what is the rule, the guiding principle of the kingdom of God. And if somebody would read Mark 8, 34 through Chapter 9, verse 1.
the kingdom of God coming in power. What's really interesting about this is that Jesus has said it's necessary for the Son of Man to do this, and then he says it's necessary for you to do it too. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's the guiding principle which the New Testament teaches about the kingdom of God. It is a new covenant, a new law, a new direction. And it has vast moral and ethical implications. But Jesus makes not only a statement about the present reality, that is, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He also talks about the Son of Man who will return in the future. And he says, if you deny me, I will deny you. I think this is something we need to take very, very seriously. Because we talk about the Christian life sometimes, and words like obedience, words like doing good as a necessity, seem somehow anti-Christian, or outside of our, uh, uh, somehow contrary to God's freely forgiven grace. But this is talking about the second coming of Christ, and there is at that time, God will take account of our lives. And so, discipleship involves, right from the beginning, taking our cross up and following him. And that means denying ourselves. Right from the beginning. Jesus invited them into this kingdom, and he showed them how to do it, because he went to the cross. So, what have we learned here tonight? Well, let's just go back to that question. How do you teach children to do good? You know, when they ask why you should be, it's my contention that the answer to that is because I love you. And you see, a real parent is not just going to tell that child, don't get near this water. They're going to teach them how to swim. They're going to give them instructions on how boat safety, how you should wear a life jacket, because they want them to have the character to be able to handle incidents like this responsibly. It's a question of character. And the same thing happens with God. He, is, he saves us by grace, through faith, that we might be joined to him and share and reflect his character. That's been God's intention since the beginning, that we are created in his image to reflect him. And that's what salvation is about, too. We are called into his presence by grace, through faith, that we might reflect his character. So, Grace and obedience come together. We can't separate them. 
And that's sometimes an unfortunate result of our language in our theological background. I don't know about you, but in my background, uh, we often hear about how you are saved by grace and justified, and then after that you're sanctified. And they're brought, they're separated. And sanctification is described as a process that you go through in the Christian life. And it just doesn't fit in the Bible. Because sanctification is a state of being. It's a, it's a mode of existence. We're called saints. And there is no, I just take it on, maybe you can show me elsewhere, but in my reading of the New Testament, there is no idea of progressive sanctification. You are sanctified and you're justified. Now, the Reformers separated those for conceptual reasons because they had been blurred together in the Christian tradition. But subsequent to that, they became separate and in some Protestant traditions. And I think it's to our detriment. What I hope as we go through the Christian ethics here is that you will have a more optimistic view of our ability as disciples of Christ to reflect his nature. To not be always the sinner and the saint, but to be a disciple who's walking in the light and who can look back on their life and see God's work changing them over time, calling them to, to greater obedience and greater love of him. You know, if we just see God as our Savior, he may not be our God because he is, is also our king, and we live in his kingdom. I know I had to learn that. I was glad to accept Jesus as my Savior, but I had trouble with the idea of making him my king. And so that's what we're going to do in the uh, weeks following this. We're going to look closer and closer at the at moral and ethical instructions of Jesus and the apostles so that we can handle these difficult questions that come up in the Christian life. We don't just want to provide easy answers or ignore them or talk about grace, 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 and never talk about how we are supposed to live. So we're going to take a very serious look at Jesus' instruction for the Christian life as well as Paul and the other apostles, and we're going to handle specific issues. Now, this may be controversial, but welcome to reality. So, um, I thought uh, it would be worthwhile for us to uh, spend some time, again, um, let's, we'd have, I think, a sufficient size to have a meaningful discussion if we just divide in two groups and spend uh, the next 20 minutes or so uh, thinking about the implications of the kingdom of God and how it, uh, how, what that means in our life. And I put these two questions down there. And so uh, if you'll just go down there and maybe, uh, George, if you'll take people over here on this side, 
and I'll work with people on this side, and we'll spend another 15, 20 minutes just discussing a couple questions that have to do with the kingdom of God. 